Hello and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 7 of the Third Crusade called Richard the Lionheart's Last Battle. In the last episode, we heard about how King Richard the Lionheart of England failed to capture Jerusalem after securing some of the greatest crusader victories since the First Crusade a hundred years before. Why couldn't he take Jerusalem as the First Crusaders had done, especially since his army was probably slightly larger, if anything, than the First Crusader army when it finally arrived before the walls of Jerusalem in 1099. The reason was that 100 years before, at the time of the First Crusade, the Middle East was highly fragmented as the Turkish Seljuk Empire had started to break up, and the Crusaders were confronted with a host of divided Arab emirates. Now, the situation facing Richard was far more difficult because Islam was united under Saladin, who ruled a vast empire from the Sudan through Egypt to Syria and Iraq. He was in command of a huge power base, and consequently, one of the major problems for Richard was that even if he captured Jerusalem, could he, and after he left, the Crusader king, actually hold it for long against Saladin's numerically superior forces? The Crusader cities on the coast, like Tyre, Acre, Tripoli and Antioch, were in a much better position because they could at least be supplied from the sea, where the Italian merchant city-states like Pisa, Genoa and Venice were now very powerful. But to hold Jerusalem, which was landlocked, was going to be virtually impossible. Because of this, we heard in the last episode how Richard made a treaty with Saladin in which Christians were allowed to go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, but the city itself would stay in Arab hands. But this treaty wasn't yet ratified, and in this episode, we'll hear how Richard spotted one last opportunity to take Jerusalem before he went home. As before, I'll read Extracts from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's brilliant History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. In the spring of 1192, King Richard of England invited the new crusader, King Henry of Jerusalem, to join him at Ascalon. There was a rumour that one of Saladin's nephews in Mesopotamia had begun a dangerous revolt against the Sultan. So Richard, whose treaty with the Saracens was not yet ratified, decided on a sudden attack on the town of Daron, 20 miles down the coast. But Henry, with the French army, dallied at Acre, Without waiting for them, Richard advanced by sea and land on Daron, and on the 23rd of May, after five days' fierce fighting, the lower town was stormed and the garrison in the citadel surrendered. Richard had learnt little from Saladin's courtesy, for some of the garrison were killed by the sword or flung over the battlements, or taken away bound into perpetual captivity. The easy capture of Saladin's last fortress on the Palestinian coast so heartened the Crusaders that they planned once more to march on Jerusalem itself. Henry and the French arrived at Daron the day after his capture in time to spend Whitson there with the king. The army returned to Ascalon immediately afterwards and the French and English alike urged an immediate attack upon the holy city of Jerusalem. Richard had just heard more disquieting news from England and he was doubtful 
doubtful whether the expedition was militarily feasible. He took to his bed in perplexity and was only aroused by a stirring address given him by one of his French chaplains. He then vowed to stay in Palestine until the following Easter. On the 7th of June, the Christian army set out again from Ascalon. Bypassing Ramla by marching on the road through Blanchegarde, it reached Latrune on the 9th and Beit Nuba on the 11th. There Richard halted, and there the army remained for a month. Saladin waited at Jerusalem, where his reinforcements from the Jazeera and Mosul had just arrived. Without better stores and baggage animals, it would be folly for the Christians to advance further into the hills. Both sides settled down to skirmishing with varying success. One day, as he was riding out over the hills above Emmaus, King Richard suddenly saw a distant view of the walls and towers of Jerusalem itself. Hastily, he covered his face with his shield, that he might not fully behold the city which God had not allowed him to deliver. But there were compensations. The Syrian bishop of Lydda came one day to the camp with a portion of the true cross that he had saved. A little later, the abbot of the Greek convent of Mar Elias, a venerable man with a long white beard, told the king of a spot where he buried another portion of the cross to save it from the infidel. It was dug up and given to Richard. These fragments consoled the army for its failure to retrieve the major part of the relic, which it seems Saladin had now restored to the Holy Sepulchre at Jerusalem. On the 20th of June, when the army leaders were hesitating whether to abandon the attempt on Jerusalem and march instead into Egypt, news came of a great Muslim convoy making its way from the south towards the holy city of Jerusalem. Three days later, Richard fell on it by the round system, the walls of Kuwaifa, in the barren countryside some 20 miles southwest of Hebron. The Muslims were ill-prepared for the onslaught. After a short battle, the whole caravan was captured with its its rich merchandise, its plentiful supplies of food, and some thousands of horses and camels, the Christian army returned in triumph to the camp at Beit Nuba. Saladin was horrified by the news Richard would now surely march on Jerusalem. He hastily sent men to block up all the wells between Beit Nuba and the city, and cut down all the fruit trees. On the 1st of July, he held an anxious council in Jerusalem to discuss whether he should retire eastward. He himself wished to stay there and his assembled emirs supported his decision, protesting their loyalty to him. But the Turkish and Kurdish troops were quarrelling and he was unsure how well they would stand up to a vigorous attack. His worries soon were settled. There had been anxious debates in the Crusader camp also. The French soldiers were eager to press on now that food and transport were abundant, but Richard's scouts had warned him of the lack of water, and there was still the problem how to hold Jerusalem when the Western Crusaders returned home. To the jeers and insults of the French, King Richard once again ordered the army to retreat from Beit Nuba. On the 4th of July, news reached Saladin that the Christians had broken camp and were beginning to move down towards the coast. He rode out to a neighbouring hill at the head of his men to watch the distant procession of the Crusaders. 
As soon as he was back at Jaffa, King Richard again sought a truce that would leave him free to go home. But Henry, the new heir to the kingdom of Jerusalem, sent Saladin an arrogant message announcing that Jerusalem should be given to him. Richard's ambassadors, who went to Jerusalem three days later, were more reasonable. In return for keeping Jerusalem, Saladin agreed to treat Henry as a son, to allow Latin priests into the holy places in Jerusalem, and to cede the coast of Palestine to the Christians, provided only that Ascalon was dismantled. Richard refused to consider the dismantling of Ascalon, even when Saladin offered him Lydda in exchange. While the agreement was still being carried on by messengers going to and fro, Richard moved to Acre, planning to sail away even if the treaty was not yet signed. His scheme was to march suddenly on Beirut, seize it and embark there for Europe. His absence gave Saladin an opportunity. Early on the 27th of July, he took his army out from Jerusalem and arrived that evening before Jaffa and at once began the assault of that city. After three days of bombardment, his sappers made a breach and the Saracen army poured in. The defence was heroic, but in vain. The garrison was forced to capitulate on the understanding that their lives would be spared. The negotiations were conducted for the Christians by the new patriarch, who happened to be in the city. But Saladin's troops were now getting out of hand. Kurds and Turks rushed through the streets, seeking plunder and slaughtering the citizens who tried to defend their houses. So Saladin, showing his usual chivalrous behaviour, advised the garrison to shut itself in the citadel until he could restore order. A swift message had brought news of the attack on Jaffa to King Richard as soon as Saladin approached the walls. He at once set out to its rescue, going himself by sea with Pisan and Genoese help and sending his army by by land. But adverse sea winds held him up and his army, reluctant to arrive at Jaffa before him, delayed on the road to Caesarea. On the 31st, when Saladin had pacified his troops sufficiently to allow him to evacuate 49 of the knights of the garrison with their wives and baggage from the citadel through the town, Richard's fleet of 50 galleys sailed into sight. The garrison at once resumed the battle and in a desperate charge almost drove the disorganised Muslims from the town. Richard, not knowing what was happening, hesitated to land until a priest swam out to tell him that the citadel was not taken. He beached his ships at the foot of the citadel and waded ashore at the head of his men. The garrison in despair had already sent new envoys to negotiate with Saladin, who was talking with them in his tent when Richard launched his attack. The Saracens, many of them still scattered around the streets, were taken by surprise. The ferocity of Richard's onslaught, himself fighting furiously in the vanguard, combined with another attack from the garrison, drove them into headlong flight. A secretary came to Saladin's tent and whispered to him of the rout. As he tried to detain his visitors with pleasant conversation, the torrent of Muslim fugitives revealed the truth. Saladin had no choice but to order a retreat. He was able to remain in his camp himself with a handful of cavalry, but his main army fled to Assia five miles inland before it reassembled its ranks. Richard had recaptured Jaffa with some 80 knights and 400 bowmen and perhaps 2,000 Italian marines. His whole force had only three horses. The very next morning, Saladin sent his chamberlain Abu Bakra to resume the peace talks. He found Richard joking with some captive emirs 
both about Saladin's swift capture of Jaffa and about his swift recapture of it. He said he had been unarmed and not even had time to change his shoes, but he agreed at once with Abu Bakr that the war must stop. Saladin's message suggested as a bargaining point that as Jaffa was now half-ruined, the Frankish frontier should stop at Caesarea. Richard countered by offering to hold Jaffa and Ascalon as a fief under Saladin, without explaining how the vassaldom would work when he was back in Europe. Saladin's answer was to offer Jaffa, but to insist on keeping Ascalon. Once again, Ascalon proved to be the stumbling block. Negotiations were broken off. The Frankish army, which Richard had summoned to rescue Jaffa, was advancing past Caesarea. Saladin, well aware how small was Richard's force at Jaffa, determined to strike at his camp outside the walls before the new Crusader army could arrive. At daybreak on Wednesday, the 5th of August, a Genoese wandering about the outside of the camp heard the neighing of horses and the tramp of soldiers and saw afar off steel glistening in the light of the rising sun. He roused the camp, and when the Saracens appeared, Richard was ready. His men had not had time to arm themselves. Each took what was at hand. There were only fifty-four knights fit for battle, and only fifteen horses, and about two thousand infantrymen. Behind a low palisade of tent pegs designed to disconcert the enemy horses, Richard set his men in pairs, their shields fixed as a fence in front of them and their long spears planted in the ground at an angle to impale the oncoming cavalry. Between each pair an archer was stationed. The Muslim cavalry charged in seven waves of a thousand men each, but they couldn't pierce the wall of steel. These charges continued until the afternoon. Then when the enemy horses seemed to be tiring, Richard passed his bowmen through to the front line and discharged all his arrows into the oncoming host. The volley checked the enemy. The archers passed back again behind the spearmen, who charged with Richard on horseback at their head. Saladin was lost in angry admiration at the sight. When Richard's horse was killed under him, he gallantly sent a groom through the midst of the turmoil with two fresh horses as a gift to the brave king. Some Muslims crept round to attack the town itself, and the marines guarding it fled towards their ships until Richard rode up and rallied them. In the evening, Saladin called off the battle and retreated back to Jerusalem, adding to the fortifications there, lest Richard still might pursue him. It was a superb victory, won by Richard's tactics and his personal bravery, but it wasn't followed up. Within a day or two, Saladin was back at Ramlah with a fresh army of levies from Egypt and northern Syria, while Richard, worn out by his exertions, lay seriously ill of a fever in his tent. Richard now longed for peace. Saladin repeated his former offer, still insisting on the surrender of Ascalon. It was hard for Richard to bear. He wrote to his old friend Aladil, who himself was on a sickbed near to Jerusalem, to beg him to intervene with Saladin and persuade him to leave Ascalon. Saladin held firm. He sent the fevered king peaches and pears and snow from Mount Hermon to cool his drinks, but he would not yield Ascalon. 
Richard was in no position to bargain. His health, as well as his brother's misdeeds in England, demanded his swift return home. The other crusaders were also weary. His nephew Henry and the military orders showed that they distrusted his politics. Of what use would Ascalon be to them if he and his army had left? He had made public too often his determination to leave Palestine. On Friday the 28th of August, Aladil's courier brought him Saladin's final offer. Five days later, on the 2nd of September 1192, he signed a treaty of peace for five years and the Sultan's ambassadors added their names to his. The ambassadors then shook Richard's hand and swore on their master's behalf. Richard, as a king, refused to take an oath himself, but Henry, the heir of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, Balian of Ibelin, and the masters of the hospital and the temple swore for him. Saladin himself signed the treaty next day in the presence of Richard's ambassadors. The war of the Third Crusade was over. The treaty gave the coastal cities as far south as Jaffa to the Crusaders. Pilgrims might freely visit Jerusalem and the holy places. Muslims and Christians might pass through each other's lands, but Ascalon was to be demolished. As soon as Saladin had made arrangements for their escort and lodging, parties from the crusading army went up unarmed with a passport from the king to pay their homage at the shrines of Jerusalem. Richard himself would not go and refused to give any of the French troops a passport, but many of his own knights made the journey. One party was led by Hubert Walter, Bishop of Salisbury, who was received there with honour and given an audience with Saladin. They talked of many subjects, and in particular of Richard's character. The bishop declared that he possessed every good quality, but Saladin thought that he lacked wisdom and moderation. When Saladin offered the bishop a parting present... The bishop asked that two Latin priests and two Latin deacons might be allowed to serve at the Holy Sepulchre and also at Bethlehem and Nazareth. Saladin consented and a few months later the priests arrived and were allowed to perform their duties unmolested. A disagreement then broke out between the Crusaders and the Byzantines. Rumours had reached Constantinople that Richard was pressing for the Pope to control the holy places. While Saladin was still at Jerusalem, an embassy arrived there from the Byzantine Emperor Isaac Angelus, asking that the Byzantine Church might be given back the full control of the holy places, such as they had possessed in the days of the Fatimids. Saladin refused the request. He wouldn't allow any one sect to... To be dominant there, but like the Ottoman Sultan centuries after him, he would be the judge of them all. He also refused at once a request made by the distant Queen of Christian Georgia to purchase the Holy Cross itself for 200,000 dinars. When the treaty was signed, Richard journeyed back to Acre. There he set his affairs in order, paying the debts that he owed and trying to collect those owed to him. On the 29th of September, Queen Berengaria and Queen Joanna sailed out from Acre to reach France safely before the winter storms. Ten days later, on the 9th of October, Richard himself left the land where he had fought so valiantly for 16 bitter months. Fortune was against him. Bad weather forced him to call in at Corfu in the territory of the Byzantine Emperor Isaac Angelus. Fearing that he might be taken prisoner, he took passage at once disguised as a Templar knight with 
with four attendants in a pirate boat that was bound for the head of the Adriatic. This boat was wrecked near Aquileia and Richard and his companions went on by land through Carinthia and Austria, intending to hurry quickly onto the territory of his brother-in-law Henry of Saxony. But Richard was not a man to wear disguise convincingly. On the 11th of December, he was recognised when he paused at an inn near to Vienna. He was at once led before Duke Leopold of Austria, the man whose banner he had thrown down into the ditch at Acre. Leopold accused him of the murder of Conrad of Montferrat and cast him into prison. Three months later, he was handed over to Leopold's lord, the German emperor Henry VI, who also disliked Richard because of his friendship with his own enemies, Henry the Lion and Tancred of Sicily. He kept him captive for a year and only released him in March 1194 on the payment of a huge ransom and an oath of vassaldom. During the weary months of his captivity, his lands had been seized by his brother John and the French King Philip. When he returned home, he had far too many tasks to ever contemplate a return to the Holy Land to fight Saladin. For five years, he fought brilliantly in France, defending his inheritance against the French King, until on the 26th of March, 1199, a stray arrow shot from a rebel castle in the Limousin, brought his life to a close. Richard the Lionheart has passed into legend. He was a bad son, a bad husband, and a bad king. But he was a courageous and gifted soldier. He will always be remembered as the man who halted the great Islamic offensive led by Saladin, his greatest, but by far his most chivalrous, enemy. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to leave any ratings or reviews, especially on Apple Podcasts, you'd be doing me a massive favour. And do please also leave me some critical feedback as well, which is always really helpful, such as a reviewer who recently said that I read too fast through some of the battle scenes. I'll try to slow that down. And if I read fast, it's probably because I just find them too exciting. And in the next episode, we'll discover what happened to the Crusaders after King Richard returned home. (laughs) 